Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. What a blessing to be able to hear from the living God. We're going to be looking at um, Matthew chapter 11 this morning, verses 20 through 30. And uh, Pastor Kevin read the passage already, so I won't read it again now. We'll read it as we go through it, of course. Um, There's two paragraphs here, and in these two paragraphs, Jesus is the one who talks about woe and rest. He talks about woe in verses 20 through 24 and rest in verses 25 through 30. And um, these two subjects, woe and rest, might sound like they don't fit. They don't go together. And yet, here's Jesus speaking of both. Here's Matthew, as he's guided along in his writing by the Holy Spirit, connecting the two, and so they most certainly do go together. And these two realities... Um, woe, which, as we're going to see, is a, it's an oracle of judgment, and rest. They remind us, they illustrate for us what's at stake when it comes to Jesus coming into the world and living and dying and rising again. And then the message of the gospel that he proclaimed and that the Bible records and preserves for us and that we hear Sunday after Sunday in our church what the stakes are for this incredible gospel. Jesus is not a person that you can take or leave. The gospel is not something that you can take or leave. There's lots of decisions that we make in our lives right now. It's the presidential election season, and um, the the voters in South Carolina yesterday cast their ballots, and maybe you disagree with those who voted for Donald Trump, and maybe you disagree with those who voted for Nikki Haley, but at the end of the day, compared to what's at stake when it comes to Jesus, who you vote for president, big deal. It doesn't even matter. Jesus is going to make clear in these verses that any response to him other than repentance, leaves us liable to God's judgment for our sins, including, by the way, the sin of refusing to come to Jesus. But on the other hand, when we do repent and come to Christ, we experience rest for our souls. 
salvation from sin, acceptance with God, eternal life. Life and that more abundantly. What a stark contrast, huh? No other choice in your life is as important as this one. What will you do with Jesus Christ? May God help us to make the right choice as we listen to the words of Jesus himself this morning in this passage in Matthew's gospel. So woe and rest. So first of all, in verses 20 through 24, we have a message of woe, and specifically, according to Jesus, it's woe for the unrepentant. Notice in verse 20, then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And uh, those cities are going to be identified for us in the following verses, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And Jesus denounced them because they had the privilege, according to Matthew in verse 20, of witnessing Christ's mighty works, his signs and wonders, which weren't there to entertain, but to prove, to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. They had that privilege of witnessing those mighty works. In fact, Matthew says most of his mighty works, and yet they did not repent. Remember, repentance literally means a change of mind. But as John the Baptist pointed out in John, uh, Matthew chapter 3, other passages point out in the Bible, repentance isn't just an intellectual thing. It's not like, uh, it's not a change of mind like you might go from preferring spearmint gum to peppermint gum. Repentance in the Bible is a change of mind that produces the fruit of a changed life. That's repentance. And according to Jesus, repentance is the appropriate response to Jesus and his message. Because Jesus came into the world to save his people from their sin. That purpose requires repentance. If we're exposed to Jesus and what he's all about, his, his mission, saving sinners from their sins, and there's no repentance, then we don't get Jesus, no matter what that clever series of television commercials says, right? He, he gets us. Well, we don't get him if we hear about him and we don't repent. That's not me, that's 
the word of God. So that's Matthew's introduction in verse 20. Now the words of Jesus. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. So twice there's that word woe. And I mentioned already that that means uh, an oracle of impending judgment. And it's used several times in the New Testament. Later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Matthew 23 and verse 13. Jude uses this word, woe to them. And in the context, he's talking about false teachers. And in the book of Revelation, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. It's a word of warning. It's a word of impending judgment and doom, woe. And Jesus pronounces woe against these two specific cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Now, those two cities haven't been mentioned to us so far, but we have been uh, introduced to Capernaum. This was Jesus' base of operations during his Galilean ministry. Uh, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And you'll, you'll notice that Chorazin is up here. That's like two to three miles north-northwest of, Caper of Capernaum. Bethsaida is like four miles east of Capernaum. But they're all in the general vicinity. And so even though we're not told specifically that Jesus went to uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida, he obviously did, and it makes sense. This is the region of his Galilean ministry, and he's going around there doing all kinds of mighty works. And so the people of those two cities had exposure to the glory of God revealed in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what else Jesus says here. So woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. So let's talk about those. Um, this is zooming out from that previous map. There's the Sea of Galilee. There's Capernaum again. Tyre and Sidon are up here on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Today, that's in Lebanon. But um, they were part of the, the ancient civilization of Phoenicia. They were twin port cities about 25 miles apart. And historically, they were enemies of Israel and very, very pagan. In fact, God had pronounced judgment against them Isaiah, in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, Jeremiah. And uh, between the time of the prophets and the time of Jesus, they were both destroyed. And the cities of Tyre and Sidon that existed at the time of Jesus, they were, they were a mere shadow of their previous selves. 
Because God indeed brought judgment against them because of their wickedness. And so in the minds of the Jews who heard Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11, Tyre and Sidon were wicked cities who had been righteously judged by God for their wickedness. And they were above them. The Jews who heard the words of Jesus were above Tyre and Sidon. They weren't wicked. They didn't deserve to be judged like Tyre and Sidon did. That's why what Jesus said next must must have really been shocking to them. Verse 22, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. What? Got to be kidding me. I'm a Jew. I'm an offspring of Abraham. I know the law. I've got the covenants, the law, the promises. I'm not a pagan like the residents of Tyre and Sidon. And yet Jesus says, the day of judgment, and indeed, there is a day of judgment when everyone, small and great, will give an account before the Lord. The day of judgment will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon than for the residents of Chorazin and Bethsaida. Which, by the way, taking a step back for a moment from verse 22, um, there are degrees of judgment. There are degrees of punishment. It's not a one and a zero. It's not as if um, everybody who goes to heaven is on an equal plane. Uh, Heaven is communist, let's say. There's rewards of blessing. There's uh, degrees of blessing and reward in heaven. And there are also degrees of judgment and punishment. Now, hell is hell. Hell is not heaven. Hell is unbearable. And yet, for those who reject more light from God, hell will be even less bearable than for others. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about how uh, there's enough information communicated through creation about God's Godhead, his being, his wisdom and his power to render everybody without excuse. And so even if someone doesn't hear the gospel, they're still without excuse because of the testimony of creation. And yet, when somebody 
hears the message of Jesus and they don't repent, according to Jesus, they're liable to greater judgment, greater condemnation. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 12 and verse 48, to whom much is given, much will be required. But it turns out that Chorazin and Bethsaida weren't the only Jewish cities called out by Jesus for their unrepentance. Look at verse 23. And you, Capernaum. We saw Capernaum on the map. So Jesus didn't just visit Capernaum. That was his base of operations for roughly 18 months or so. Imagine having Jesus, God incarnate, living in your city. And you hear, oh, Jesus is at Leroy Jackson Park today. And you say, ah, got too much to do. Busy. Or even worse. You go to Leroy Jackson Park. By the way, don't get me wrong. Jesus is not at Leroy Jackson Park. It's an illustration. Well, he is. He's everywhere. But even worse than that is to go to where Jesus is and you hear his preaching, because that's what he did. He did mighty works and he preached a mighty gospel. The two went hand in hand. So you go and you see and you hear and then you go, oh, okay, that's nice, Jesus. And then you go on your merry way, but you don't repent. You don't get it. That's even worse. And that was the situation of the people in Capernaum. And you, Capernaum, verse 23a, will you be exalted to heaven? The people of Capernaum were proud of their city. They were proud of the fact that that's where they were from. They were proud of their cities and they were proud of themselves as its citizens. But God saw them differently. Notice the second half of verse 23. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would, have been, it would have remained until this day. So maybe you don't remember Tyre and Sidon, but certainly you remember Sodom, right? Sodom was an ancient city in the book of Genesis that was so given over to sexual sin and debauchery that God rained down on their heads, fire and brimstone. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 19. But according to Jesus, the Jewish city of Capernaum was even more guilty than Sodom.
But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. They were great sinners, those Sodomites. But they didn't hear the gospel the way that the people of Capernaum did. And so the obvious lesson right out the gate here is don't be like the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum who were exposed to the light of Jesus' mighty works and his mighty gospel but wouldn't repent. Don't be like them. Be warned. Be warned. What you do with Jesus is very important. And you're going to be held accountable. You will each give an answer for how we respond to the message of the gospel. Remember, repentance. Repentance. Not half-hearted church attendance. Not just listening to Christian music on the radio and then having a foul mouth the rest of the week and on and on and on. But repentance, a thorough change of mind, a turning from your old ways and your old life to Jesus and following him as your Lord and Savior and no longer just following your own wicked, foolish heart. No longer just following the ways of this world. That's repentance. And that is what Jesus requires. So woe for the unrepentant. But that's not the end of the story. The New Testament is not primarily a story of woe, of judgment, but it's a story of good news. It's the story of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. And so in verses 25 through 30, following on the he's, the heels of this message of woe in verses 20 through 24, we have promise of rest for those who come to Christ in verses 25 through 30. And this is broken up into two sections. The first is in verses 25 through 27. It's a, it's a transition. So Jesus doesn't just um, pivot immediately and go from woe to rest. He gets there. But there's this transition in verses 25 through 27 in the form of a prayer. And it appears to be a public prayer. So here's Jesus, the Son of God, praying to his Father in heaven. And he says, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth. So it's a prayer of thanksgiving. What does God thank his father for? 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. God, the God of the Bible, the God who is, is the God who hides and reveals. He hides these things. Well, what's Jesus been talking about? Repentance, salvation, saving faith, heaven and hell, right? Judgment and salvation. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. They're not really wise. They're wise in their own eyes. They're filled with understanding as far as this world is concerned. But remember, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And when Jesus says that God reveals these things, the things that pertain to salvation, to little children, he doesn't mean that literally, although I think literal children are included here. But he means those who have a childlike faith in God. Those who realize their helplessness before God. The fact that they need God, even as we just sang, Lord, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. When you sing that and pray that and think of that and feel that, you're expressing a childlike faith. And that's what Jesus is talking about. These two groups, those who are proud and arrogant and wise in their own eyes and those who have a childlike He hides the things of salvation from the proud and he reveals them to little children. Let me ask you though, does that mean that if God has revealed the things of salvation to you. He has opened your eyes. If he's unstopped your deaf ears to the gospel, does that mean that you're more humble than the next guy or gal? Has, has God surveyed all of humanity and as the gospel is going out far and wide, to the ends of the earth? Does he say, oh, here is one who is naturally humble. I'm going to reveal the gospel to that one. What's wrong with thinking that way? Well, notice what Jesus says next. Verse 26. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
In the Bible, grace means unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. It doesn't mean that God's favor is deserved a little bit. Like you're more naturally humble than the next person. That's why God has revealed the things of the gospel to you. That's why you're saved. It doesn't mean that at all because that's a contradiction to grace. If you're more humble than the next person and your innate humility is what you bring to the table and then God rewards that by opening your eyes, then grace is no longer at work. As soon as you introduce what we deserve, as soon as you introduce human merit into the equation of salvation, throw grace out the window. It no longer applies. Now it's debt. Now it's what God owes us. That's obviously not Jesus, uh, not what Jesus is saying. Uh, the Apostle Paul elaborates on this in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, when he wrote, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Not humility. Paul continues, If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Who makes you to differ? Now, there is a difference between the proud and the humble. The point is this. Where did you get your humility from? If you have any humility, it's a gift from God. Humility itself is a gift of God's grace. But the way it's expressed here by Jesus implies that, G, uh, that God rewards humility, and he does. But that's how gracious God is. Humility itself is a gift of God's grace, and then when humility is expressed, God blesses that. Peter says that in 1 Peter 5 and verse 5, God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. He gives grace to the humble. The open Bible makes a really cool remark here. Humility, it says, humility is a grace that attracts more grace. It's, it's just like faith in that regard, right? For without faith, it is impossible to please God. And yet, faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2 and verse 8. Philippians 1 and verse 29. It's granted to us to believe. Faith is not something that we bring to the table. Faith itself is a gift from God. And then when we exercise faith, 
God is pleased. That's how gracious he is. What does God see when he looks into our sinful hearts? Well, keep your finger here in Matthew chapter 11 and look in Mark chapter 12. Notice verse 20 and following. Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Pride is native to the fallen human heart. It's so much a part of us that we're even proud of our humility. And it's hard for us to admit that humility itself is a gift of God's grace. So, just trying to set the record straight there. This is how gracious God is. God definitely resists the proud, but exalts the humble. And it is absolutely true that God hides the things of the gospel from the wise and understanding and reveals them to little children but his grace is so all-encompassing that even our humility is a gift of his grace. Okay, moving on. Next, Jesus says that he himself plays a role in God's sovereign revealing. God hides and he reveals. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Remember what he says in the Great Commission, Matthew 28 and verse 18? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And remember, we're talking about repentance and judgment and salvation. So if that's the context and all things have been handed over to Jesus by the Father, that means that there's salvation in no one else. This is why Jesus would have the audacity to say that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. It's not audacity, it's the truth. It's audacity and worse. It's blasphemy if Jesus isn't the Son of God. But he is the Son of God. He's the Messiah, the way, the truth, and the life. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, 
And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So the Father sovereignly hides and reveals, and Jesus, the Son, is involved in that as well. Jesus said in the high priestly prayer, John 17 and verse 26, this was also directed to his Father, I made known to them, his disciples, your name. I made known to them your name. I revealed your name, your essence, your glory and honor. And Jesus also said to his disciples in John 15 and verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And um, John doesn't record for us any objections from the disciples. Maybe there weren't any. But you could have imagined them objecting. Lots of Christians today object to that truth from Jesus. The disciples could have objected by saying, wait a minute, Jesus, but I did choose you. Levi could have, Matthew himself could have said, but Jesus, you came by the tax booth and you said, Levi, come, follow me. And I followed, I left everything and I followed you. Of course I chose you, Jesus. Jesus isn't denying that. He's giving the big picture. You did not choose me, but I chose you. In other words, you chose me because I first chose you. Again, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So that's this transition. This is this prayer of thanksgiving on the part of Jesus. Then we have a gracious invitation. And this is the popular part about this verse, this passage. And it should be popular. This is glorious. This is wonderful. But we shouldn't forget everything else that goes along with this. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. This is a, uh, an emphasis that the gospel is not just an abstraction, but the gospel is all contained in a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's a person of history, Jesus of Nazareth. He was born of a virgin. His mother was Mary. His stepfather was Joseph. He was born in Bethlehem. And he lived in and around Galilee and Nazareth. And he died on a Roman cross. And he was raised by the power of God. 
And all of this for the express purpose of saving sinners like us. Jesus doesn't just preach the gospel. Jesus himself is the gospel. Come to me. Put your trust in me. Hide yourself in me. Follow me. And you can do this anywhere because Jesus is everywhere. That's why you don't need to go to Leroy Jackson Park. And he says, come to me all who labor. And this is a really descriptive word. It means to be worn out. Weary. Faint. Have you ever felt worn out, weary? But this is a specific kind of worn outness and weariness that Jesus is talking about. It's the kind of being worn out that comes from having this this heavy burden on your back. All who labor and are heavy laden. It, it's this picture of this heavy burden on your back that crushes you. The burden of a guilty conscience. The burden of self-righteousness. Striving, working, to try to justify yourself, to try to earn your way to heaven. It's exhausting because it's impossible. The burden of trying to live up to other, pe other people's expectations. Like the people listening to Jesus because their leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, laid on the people burdens that were hard to bear. Jesus is going to say that later. And it's exhausting when you try to satisfy the moral ideas and mores of society or some group. It'll wear you out. And so in contrast to that, the promise of Jesus is, I will give you rest. Rest from a guilty conscience. Rest from trying to earn your way to heaven. Rest from trying to live up to everyone else's expectations. And how does Jesus do that? Why is he able to do that? Because Jesus alone has fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus himself is the Lord, our righteousness. In Jesus are hidden all of the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus himself is our all in all. Jesus is our joy. 
Jesus is our satisfaction. And so when you have Jesus, you have that for which you were created. But that doesn't mean that Jesus calls us to a life of idleness. Notice what he says in verses 29 through 30. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is a yoke. Jesus doesn't save us so that we can be free agents doing whatever we want in this life with no reference to him. He yokes us together with him, just as oxen would be yoked together in that day and age. He wants us to learn from him, because there's a lot to learn. It's foolishness when it comes to things that really matter, foolishness in our hearts and minds. But Jesus is wisdom from God. He's wisdom incarnate. And so he teaches us and we learn from him because we're his disciples. And he's not mean. He's not strict. He's not overbearing. He's not this dictator. He's gentle and lowly in heart. And his yoke, even though it is a yoke, it's easy. Why is it easy? Because he does give us commandments. And he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's easy because this whole gift of salvation is a package deal. When God saves a soul, he changes that soul. He gives us a new heart and he writes his law on our hearts. And so what used to be just dread to us, God's commandments, even the words were dread, uh, commandments. Now they're our delight. I delight in the law of God in the inward man. Paul would write in Romans chapter 7. And his commandments, by the way, they're easy because he changes their hearts and they're easy because they're right. They just make sense. They align with the universe because they align with the creator of the universe. And his burden is light. We come to Christ bringing this heavy burden that's ultimately due to our sin. Christ relieves us of that burden because he bore our burden on the cross of Calvary. And we go on from there with a spring in our step, meaning and purpose for our lives, the power of the Holy Spirit filling us and enabling us and empowering us. A new vision 
the vision of heaven and eternity with God. Not just the next thrill, the next high, the next trinket that the world has to offer. These things that all perish with the using, that don't last forever, but an eternal purpose, eternal blessings, and eternal reward. No wonder his burden is light. And I close with the words of a hymn that we sing to a a modernized melody, thank God. (laughs) But you'll recognize this. Um, It's by Joseph Hart from 1759. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity love, and power. Let not conscience make you linger. Don't let anything make you wait. Nor a fitness fondly dream. Don't wait until you think you're presentable to God because you're just not and you never will be. All the fitness he requires is to fill your need of him. Come ye weary, heavy laden. Lost. And ruined by the fall. If you tarry, if you wait till you're better, you will never come at all. Just come. Come.